Father, we thank you again for your grace that's new every morning. We thank you for the, the beautiful weather that we have. The Christmas in mid-April is unusual for Texas, and so we, we recognize it for what it is, another gift from you. We pray that um, you would be with us this morning and that we would not rely upon the wisdom that um, is of man that uh, destroys uh, our chance of being right with you, but that we rely on your wisdom and what you've revealed in your scripture as we take up a difficult topic um, uh, in the doctrines of grace, irresistible grace. And so we, we pray that um, our hearts would be pliable, that your spirit be working in us, that we would see the beauties of Christ in your kind intention and kind mercy toward us, taking us from hearts that are uh, born rebellious against you and that you um, you take those hearts and make them uh, alive together with Christ because it's by grace that we're saved and so we thank you for that and we pray that you would be um, in us and displaying the beauty of that grace as we talk about objections to this doctrine we thank you for all these things in Christ's name amen all right we are Plowing on, we took a little bit of a break um, past two weeks on our discussion through the uh, doctrines of grace, also known as Calvinism. Uh, we went through our last, the last time we were together, we went through uh, what's commonly called irresistible grace or the effectual calling. And I, if you remember, one of the reasons I've set it up this way, I'm not following the typical tulip uh, outline. It's not because I hate flowers. I like flowers, they're okay, but I wanted to kind of go at it from the standpoint of what we experience in salvation. What is, the, what is our experiential um, understanding of how we're saved? And so we started with T, we followed that order, total depravity, total inability, and, and came to the conclusion, looking through Scripture, that we are born in Adam, and that from birth... Our hearts are in rebellion. We want to be the king, right? That's where we start. We want to be the king. Um, Augustine talks about even crying uh, because he wanted to nurse as a baby. He, he went so far as to say that. It was, uh, was an act of rebellion against God because he inconvenienced his mother. I mean, I, I don't know how much I want to put into that, but I mean, he, he went really far on that. So... But we saw in Scripture that, that without some action on God's part, we would continue on in our rebellion. And so then we dealt with the objections to that somewhat, uh, and then we have gone on to the next experiential thing, which is how are we made to be uh, trusting in Christ? If, if we start from a standpoint of, in Adam all die, and our nature uh, if, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How are we then made alive to Christ? What happens there? Is there some remnant of faith that is in the heart of man that just, here's my gift to you, God, you know, kind of thing? Or does something have to happen? And so we looked at Scripture, which is, you know, kind of where we need to go. What does it say about what happens? And we saw that the Holy Spirit, um, we took it from a Trinitarian idea, right? 
and, I, and, I, and I've used the term Calvinist because I am one, and that's okay. I will say it's okay. Um, and because I, I'm, I'm a Trinitarian first, and out of that flows my understanding that the, the persons of the Godhead work in concert with one another. I mean, the, there's no disagreement in the Father and the Son. There's no disagreement in the Son and the Spirit. There's no disagreement in the Spirit and the Father. They work as one in the salvation of people. And irresistible grace, we see, is the expression, the doctrinal expression, of what the Holy Spirit does in the heart of sinners to bring them to Christ. And so I've given you a quote here from the Second London Baptist Confession from 1689. And I do this because there is a movement in Southern Baptist life against these doctrines, and they call themselves the traditionalists. And so I want to pull back to 1689. You don't get more traditional than in London, 1689, when you have this disagreement between the general Baptists, who were kind of anti these doctrines, and the particular Baptists, who were very much for these doctrines. And so you have 1689, their confession of faith which was sort of borrowed from Westminster. It, it, let me just say that the Second London Baptist Confession is a perfected Westminster. We'll just do it that way. It's a perfected Westminster Confession, which was a Presbyterian one. So this is the Baptist version of that. He says, Those whom God hath, everybody in Old England had the lisps, those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. Now that's a lot of old English language saying, if God doesn't draw, we ain't coming. And, and that's basically, if, if I were going to use the Holman Christian version, that's what Jesus says in John 6. If God ain't drawing, you ain't coming. That's the language that the Greek uses. The draw is one of, and we talked about this, pulling out of a well, water out of a well. You're acting against gravity to, to get the water out of the well. And that's the language that Jesus uses of God drawing the sinner to himself, drawing him effectually to Christ um, so that Christ, uh, and, he's, and the beautiful end of that is, and I will by no means cast them out. Right? He accepts all. He's not going to turn away a gift from his father. So again, that's, a, that's another one of those examples of the persons of the Godhead working in, in concert with one another. So when we use terms uh, irresistible grace or effectual calling, what we're saying is that God sovereignly and effectively, effectively summons the elect, those whom God has chosen, and we'll get to that um, uh, next time, into fellowship with Christ. You might refuse an invitation. You cannot refuse a summons. People try to refuse summons, by the way, and the police take a very dim view of that. Um, the judge will send out a constable to make sure that you show up for jury duty if you are summonsed to jury duty. Um, God is a judge. And what we're saying is those whom Christ is calling to himself, whose God is calling to himself, it's, 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 not a, it's not an invitation that you turn down. When he does that effectually, it's 
compel them to come in, the parable says. And Jesus talks about compelling people to come into the banquet. It's a summons. So I think in, 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 in viewing it, it's election doesn't save us. Okay? I want to, I want to be, there are a lot of elect people who are yet to be saved. Does that make sense? Because we're talking about election, God, before the foundation of the earth, carves out a portion of humanity on, that He will save. But that doesn't save us. We have to trust Jesus. We have to come to faith in Christ. But it's the summons of God that is the ultimate source in time and space that calls us into the blessings of the redemption of Christ. So what the Holy Spirit does is what is effectual in time and space. All right. There is a common thing that these doctrines started with Calvin. So I'm going to start with, they didn't start with Calvin. Look at Athanasius' quote in AD 350. He says, To believe, to have faith, to trust in Christ, is not ours or in our power, but the Spirit who is in us and abides in us. Then Ambrosius said this in AD 380. That's kind of fun to say, AD 380. Uh, what is impossible by human desires that can be possible by divine grace alone. For who can change nature but he who hath created nature? Who can change nature? Why is he saying that? Well, by nature, we're children of wrath. It takes a creative act to change the nature. And we talked about the different, um, the different uh, analogies that Scripture uses, the different terms that Scripture uses about the, the, the change of heart that happens. Jesus calls it the new birth. And we said, you know, you don't have a baby in the womb going, I want to be born, I want to be born, I want to be born, I, I want to be conceived. You don't have people, that's, that's logically impossible. You don't have, a new creation is the other one, right? You don't have the universe, chaos and void, saying, I want to be created, I want to be created. God has to say, let there be light. Uh, uh, resurrection is another term that is used of, the, of the, what happens in the heart. You don't have Lazarus in the tomb saying, I want to be resurrected, I want... No, that is something done to them. And so that's what um, these guys are talking about. Well, as you can understand, as you imagine, there are some objections to this. People do, do like a, a cat to a bath on these doctrines sometimes. Um, they don't like the idea of a commander of summons. So I've taken the liberty of, of organizing the objections uh, in, into two camps. There's, first, there is the Holy Spirit as a gentleman camp of objections. And then the other one is the faith precedes new birth camp of objections. So let's look at the objections. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman objections. We'll just look at those. What about Acts 7.51? Okay, so Acts 7.51, if you remember when we went through Acts, um, I need room here. Uh, Acts 7.51, you remember that uh, Stephen, when he was preaching uh, at the temple, said to the Pharisees, you always resist the Holy Spirit, right? And so, so the objector will look at that on the surface and say, see, Stephen says, you, all, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You can resist Him. You continue to resist. You can, you can resist Him. So what is this effectual calling stuff you're talking about? What is this irresistible grace stuff you're talking about? Well, what does that demonstrate? I'm gonna, the, I've done a lot of monologuing through this series, and it drives me nuts to do that. So let me, let me toss it out. What is that, what is that 
about. I know, I know what Grant's going to say. Do you? I do. Go ahead. I'll, I'll, let me see if I'm right. That you always resist is like the gravity pulling the water down. Right. Right. That, okay. The content, the analogy was a little different than I expected, but the content was the same. So, what, 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 what is, so, so what are you pointing to? Our, our nature pre-salvation. Pre-salvation. So Stephen is making a comment to, in Adam all die, right? Yeah. And he's making that statement to Paul, who's holding the coats, who will later write, in Adam all die, which is an interesting thing to think about. Um, so, in Adam all die. That's the statement. But see, someone will say, oh, we can always resist. The Holy Spirit is resistible. In Adam we all die. We stubbornly refuse to believe. It doesn't mean that the Spirit is always frustrated, though. Because we see again and again in Scripture that He overcomes those for whom... Did Paul have a choice on the road to Damascus? Hey, Jesus, I know I see you in your resurrected glory here. I'm going to go blind here in a few seconds. I can feel my eyes glazing over. Um, give me a few minutes. I know you've taken nine steps toward me. I still need to take my one step toward you. I need to think about this. Did Jesus say, take some time because I want to be a gentleman? <laughs> no. He said, go to Damascus and I'll show you how you're going to suffer for my sake. Now, if there's any way... If there's any out for resistance, it's that ringing in your ear, how you're going to suffer for my sake. Right? If I do this, if I have a free will, whatever that means, and I'm going to choose to do this, I'm going to suffer. I'm thinking that's a negative selling point for me on the deal, and I'm not persuaded. I like my flesh. I like my body. I don't like pain. Yeah? I think in, in that example and in our own lives, Hopefully, we can look at when when God opened our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. That the beauty of Christ is irresistible. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to anything, and, and so yes, God opens our eyes, opens our hearts to the beauty. But there is a once we see Christ, mm -hmm. there is a desire that He gives us. Yeah. That's part of the new heart, right. is to recognize the beauty of who Christ is. And Paul says, I've forsaken everything. I've kind of everything as, as uh, rubbish, I think is the way the English politely uh, translates it. Uh, I've kind of everything as rubbish, dung, some translations would, would say, because they're being really, you know, a little bit more cheeky, uh, for the sake of pursuing Christ. Everything else I've got, including the pain that I'm going to be suffering, I've counted that as a lesser value than the beauty of pursuing Christ. Who does that? That ain't natural. To take a guy who was practically going to be the theologian in Israel, the head philosopher in, I mean, he's uh, Senator Gamaliel. He had a great, uh, promising career as a Pharisee. Um, who does that? But for the work of the Holy Spirit, we would not have Paul. Um, he worked that way irresistibly in Peter, but not Judas. Right? He worked that way in Lydia, but not in uh, Simon the Magician. So, the objection, you always resist the Holy Spirit, 
it's not pointing to anything that is uh, a, a plausibility, a possibility of resisting the Holy Spirit. It talks about our nature. He's talking about our nature. All right, enough time on that. Objection number two. The Spirit makes all men able to believe, but He doesn't compel them to believe. Well, what are we getting at here? He makes it, he makes it able, all men able to believe, but He does not compel them to believe. Uh, I challenge, here's a challenge. I challenge anybody within the sound of my voice to come up with a text that shows that God gives a hypothetical potential faith. Does that anywhere in Scripture talk about God giving a hypothetical potential faith? And then puts that, he steps back, like we talked about a second ago with Paul. He steps back and puts a ball in their court as to whether or not they will place their trust in Christ. It's true that the Spirit enables man to believe. He has to, because in Adam all die. Our nature is one of wrath. It's true that he enables man to believe, but... What the, what the objector to, the, to this doctrine is trying to do is slip past the fact that he doesn't do that for everyone. And that's really, I think, the big issue. There's an emotional, again, cat to the bath, response to, he doesn't do that for everybody. That strikes us as being unfair because we come at it from a certain presupposition. Um, all right. Unless fallen man is compelled and overcome, he will not believe. All right, objection number three. It's unfair for God to work like that. Well, we'll just get into this. It's unfair for God to work like that in some, but not all. What's the problem with that? What's, what's the response to that? Is it, is it unfair? Is there a fairness issue with God if we say that he works this way in some, but not all? We're anticipating some of our objections to unconditional election when we get there, but... I think it applies to all of these. We're all His. We're all His. What do you mean by that? That means He can do with us what He wills. Ah. So if I own stuff, who is somebody else to tell me what I do with my stuff? Is that that's the response? <laughs> the government? Because they are our putative God? Um, it's another conversation entirely. It is tax day. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I have a twitch in my right eye. Uh, anyway, is it fair? Is it fair that he does this to some but not others? It's unfair that he does it to anybody. And then the other side of that coin is, do we want fair? Right? I don't want fair. Well, even if you take out unfair and just do loving or unloving, because that's say too mm -hmm. but it's like we we put on the we put on the highest level individual salvation and that's not necessarily god's big picture of what he's doing mm -hmm. with us. Mm -hmm. it's not individual salvation he's telling the story of himself of christ so we're part of that story and one way for him to tell that story better or the way that he best tells the story is saving some, but not all, and that glorifies Christ. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think we forget who we're dealing with yeah. when we make that objection. Um, the canons of Dort, the guys that that really kind of set up the the uh, 
that brought to a head some of these things after they were challenged by the Arminians. Uh, they anticipated this objection. They said, God is under no obligation to confer grace on anyone. No, none of, I don't deserve that kind of grace. I am, I'm a rebel against God. I was born a rebel and boy, I acted it out. I don't deserve that. Who am I to say to God, you owe me this. You owe that I have a new heart. You owe that I be made right with you because of what Christ has done. No man deserves that kind of grace. That's why it's grace. It's a gift. So um, we forget who we're dealing with. Can he do what he wants with his own? Uh, this is what Paul is asking uh, or making the, the point that he's making when he quotes I Isaiah, the original Calvinist, Isaiah. So he says in Romans 9, fun chapter to go through, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? It ain't fair, is the objection. But... So Paul goes right to it and answers, like, well, here's how it's fair, right? Is that, is that what he says? No, he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You forget who you're dealing with. Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of some lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? All right. Now, I think in, um, in America, it's been taught for so long, like... Um, Preachers like Billy Graham, for example, I mean, great guy, but it's just that get people saved, get people saved, get people saved. It's not preaching like a, a big God and that he is the master and maker of the universe. Yeah. Um, and then also, I think that it's difficult for a human to, to think about that because when you're born, all you know is your feelings, your emotions, so like that's your reality. And until you receive like a special revelation from God, it's, you can't ex escape that it's all about me mentality. By nature, we view ourselves as God. Yeah. Even though we would never say that. Well, I mean, some would. But I love how uh, John Piper uh, on one of the previous uh, uh, Passion Conferences, he, he looks at the, uh, the origin of all sin being the true origin of all sin is that of us want to be as God. Right. Going back all the way to Adam and Eve when with the devil tempting Eve saying you will be as God. Yeah. It's a pride thing. It's pride. Um, um, as uh, two sides of the coin really pride and unbelief. Alright, so we're looking at objection four now. What about free will? What about free will? So the, so the response is, what about it, right? Um, how's that free will working for you, <laughs> right? If we're in Adam, how free is that will? It's enslavement. That's not free. For freedom, Christ has made us free. Made us free. That's the freedom is coming into right relationship with Him and living as we were created or working toward um, being molded into the image of Christ that we were created to reflect. If by freedom we mean what the Bible clearly states, then our hearts are dead in sin. That's slavery, not freedom. All right. This objection number five, when I read it in Norm Geisler's work, I, I, I wanted to punch something. His objection is, claiming that grace is irresistible makes God a divine rapist. 
Okay, so keep in mind what we've talked about with who God is, who are you dealing with. And, re and listen to this. Irresistible grace on the unwilling is a violation of free choice. For true love is persuasive and never coercive. True love is persuasive and never coercive. Just think about that propositional statement for a second. There can be no shotgun weddings in heaven. God is love. True love never forces itself on anyone. Forced love is rape, and God is not a divine rapist. That's a quote? That's a quote. Norman Geisler. Norman Geisler. He's an he's a, uh, apologist, theologian guy who's very much um, antagonistic, I'll say, to, to this stuff. So I, I thank God this is not true. Well, the, the faulty underlying assumption is bad motives on God's part. If it's true. If it's true. Yeah. It's putting on him ill will. It's, put, it's, it's calling God's character into question. Yeah. Who are you, a man, to talk back to God? It goes back to Paul's thing. Um, it, what happens if God does not overcome the, the, the human will? We die in our sin. We die in our sin. That's a biblical testimony of that. We have. Yeah, you can sin as freely as you want. And all your good works are considered sin. Yeah, knock yourself out. Everything done without faith is sin. Right. Uh, the other thing is, I don't think we get the depth of our sin. The second, the second response to this, I think, is, I wonder if, uh, I'll, I'll say this as gently as I can, I don't know that Norm Geisler has ever plumbed the depths of his own sin. He certainly hasn't with this statement. We don't get how desperate our situation is to make a statement like this. Um, where, does God, where does Geisler get the notion that God does not clearly overcome the natural will? The Bible clearly teaches that, and it never talks about God's move in the heart as being a, 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 a sinful act like rape. Rape is not love. And remember when we talk, started talking about this, we started with, from, the, from the very beginning that after Paul lays out the desperate situation we're in in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he goes into, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive together in Christ. It's in the context of love. That's not rape. What a horrible statement to make. Rape victims don't respond in love to their attackers. Um, this whole mode of, of talking about this by Geisler I, I, is very dangerous. It's very humanistic. Um, and frankly, it's blasphemous. I'll just, yeah. We'll go there. Um, say you had a teenager who was brainwashed by a cult leader. Okay? They're in the commune of the cult leader. They're being abused in the commune of the cult leader. <laughs> Thinking like the Democrat convention or something. They're in the, in the cult leader's commune. Is it rape to do an intervention on your teenager to pull them out of a cult leader's grasp 
and bring them back. It would be against their will to brainwash, right? Is that rape? Is that for? Is that unloving? That's an exceptional situation. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, rewind even to a two-year-old. Well, it wants to do its. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them. And you stop that two-year-old's will for their own good, out of love. It's an, that would be an, an, a necessary act of love. Yeah. You hate them to say, go ahead and cross the street, I'll, I'll see you later. So, right? What does he say about the whole Old Testament? <laughs> it's a long discussion. <laughs> um, it's a stupid statement, but I've never heard it taken to that extreme. But it's, it's interesting to see that the people that kind of use this argument, it's like, this is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, he just, he, I guess, is honest. I mean, we can, yeah. we can admire his honesty. Yeah. So, and what you see here is, is a worship of the notion of free will to such an extent that they're willing to impugn the character of God to preserve their love of this idea of dignity of man's freedom. Um, and that's incredibly dangerous. All right, that, that's the last of the... Holy Spirit's a gentleman objections. The next section of these is faith precedes regeneration. So the argument is we have to have faith before God recreates us. Um, remember, we talked whenever we went through the, the positive assertions of, of irresistible grace that in order for uh, that the part of what the, the work that the Holy Spirit does in the heart is gift the the uh, the sinner with faith and repentance. Where are we? Oh wow! Already. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not Rodney. Sorry. Uh, I like to get people up, and uh, as I heard that, I was like, oh no, no. Uh, anyway, so uh, Dallas Theological Seminary says this in their statement of faith: We believe that when an unregenerate person exercises that faith in Christ, which is illustrated and described as such in the New Testament. He passes immediately out of spiritual death into spiritual life and from the old creation into the new. Okay, that's their statement of faith. Knowing what you know about what Scripture says concerning the heart of man in Adam, is that a logical statement? When an unregenerate person exercises that faith. Yes. There's a, there's a, again, the twitch in my right eye when I see this kind of stuff. Which means there are unregenerate people that are better than or more enlightened than other unregenerate people. Right. It, oh, that's a good point. They can have the ability to see this and to have the faith. They must be so that they can awesomely awesome people. How awesome they must be. That's how I grew up. Yeah. That's how I grew up thinking. Yeah, well, I think we all did, actually. But I must what are you boasting in in that statement? You got to boast in yourself. I did this. I gave God my faith that everybody has it, but I use mine wisely, right? As one pastor has said, it faith is impossible to a sinner as life is to a corpse. Faith is a gift of the new birth, not a means of the new birth. Faith is good, and in my flesh, Paul says in Romans 7, there's no good thing. All right, here's objection, the next one. God only offers us the gift of faith. We must ask 
for it, but we can reject it, which makes no sense to me. Consider, in response to that, God only offers us the gift of faith. Here, you can have faith, but we've got to ask for it. John, uh, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Um, everyone who believes, that's presently believing. That's the way the Greek works there. Presently believing. That whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born. That's past tense. So I, 1 John 5, 1 seems to shoot directly at this idea of faith precedes regeneration. Faith precedes the new birth. There is presently believing you have to have previously been born of God to, to get there. So, the, the fruit of the Spirit is the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. If you have the Spirit, you are born mm -hmm. of God. Mm -hmm. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. Yeah. Faith is a fruit of having the Spirit. Yes. Yes. And we'll get to that at, at the very end of Romans uh, 12, 3. All men have faith. Objection number seven. All men have faith. Only some put their faith in Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3, 2b, the last part of that says, for not all have faith. <laughs> so that was, okay, we're done. Uh, now, to be fair, there is a sense in which all men have faith. In something. In themselves, generally. I mean, all, all other worldviews, it comes down to we have faith in our own reason, we have faith in our own emotions, we have faith in Shirley MacLaine, we have faith in all kinds of things other than God. You have to because you're not eternal. So, like, that's a good point. You have to believe in something that's outside of yourself. Yeah. Whether it's some kind of energy or... Right. But you, you're not eternal, so... You can't, you can't know all. Yeah. Right. Um, Luke talks about Jesus giving parables to those who trusted in themselves. That's faith. That's a different type of faith. That it's certainly different than the one that actually saves us. Uh, no man has that by nature. None of us have it to give to Christ apart from the sovereign and effectual work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. All right. Objection number eight. Romans 12, 3. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. That's the King James Version of that. And some of those, have, some objectors have taken that out of King James and said, since God has already given the gift of faith to every man. That's a provenient grace idea. God has already given that gift to every man. It's up to man to give it back to God by trusting in Christ. Well, what's the, what's the response to Romans 12.3? Who's he talking to? In Romans twelve three, he's talking to believers. He's talking to believers, and what is he talking about? He's talking about the, what you just grace, said. The, the grace given to them. The grace given to them. The faith that is a gift. It still says faith is a gift, right? But he's but he's talking to believers. In fact, um, there's no word for man in the Greek here. It's every. Is, is, and it's referring to every believer in the context of the passage. You look at, I put in there also the, the uh, two other translations, the NASB and the ESV, uh, the eminently the superior version. Uh, in NASB it says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. The, the NASB says, uh, As God has allotted to each 
not each man, like all the world, but has allotted to each of you, is the idea, a measure of faith. And in the ESV it says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Again, talking about believers there. Even so, faith is a gift and must be, uh, that must be given by God, and, and, and it's taught explicitly so here. Um, it's 10.10. I know we're running short on time. Uh, how should this affect us? If this is true, and I'm arguing that it is, how should it affect us? That, that the Holy Spirit has to move in the heart. What, what? To me, it's, it's very reassuring because on the opposing side, if I were to choose God, that control is in, is in my court. Therefore, I cannot choose God. Mm -hmm. And every sin that I commit thereafter <coughs> is me revealing my own will of not choosing God. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it feels like you, you're falling away from God. That's a, that's a very nervous way to live. Yeah. Okay. So, to me, understanding this is very comforting. God so that's chosen me. So, so he keeps us kept. He keeps is, us kept. Yeah. Okay. Gratitude, I think, is. Ah. Yes. Yeah. But for his grace, I'd still be in rebellion. And, and I know my own heart now, and I'm still fighting rebellion. There's still remnants of rebellion. I mean, we talk about, you know, the, uh, we've said this a jillion times. He gives a heart of flesh from a heart of stone. There's still sediment of stone. And we're still trying to kick off, you know, that's the process of sanctification. That's the, the moving away from the city of man, as, Paul, as Philip would say, the city of man and moving towards the, the, the city of God. Um, so think of this also, what you're talking about, comfort. Also in terms of how the church, the persecuted church, has dealt with this throughout the centuries of their persecutors. The comfort that they have is that those things that are done come to them through a sovereign hand of God, right? Um, he has a purpose for withholding. Could he overcome Nero's heart and make him <laughs> a believer, a brother, rather than a persecutor? Of course, he did it with Paul. And yet he, did, he withholds that faith from Nero, and Christians suffer in it not because God's powerless, but because he has a greater purpose in the suffering. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, as one uh, church father said. Um, he's powerful enough to overcome the enemies of his people and recreate them into brothers. But look at how Ignatius responded to that. He said, pray for them. If so, they may repent, which is very difficult. I'm not sure if the repenting, which is impossible, or the praying for them, which is very difficult. I'm, I'm assuming it's the praying. But Jesus Christ... Our true life has the power of this, confirming that it's got to be by God that people come to faith at all, and that it's His sovereign will working even among the persecutors of the church, whether to pass over or to save some. So anyway, as we're moving forward into, I think, a more hostile environment in, in our country, we got to remember that. that these, these are sovereign. God is still sovereign. He can still move in the hearts of people who are um, uh, fascists in their tolerance uh, against opposing beliefs. And pray for them. Don't, don't, it's real easy to set up an us-them mentality and to, and to get into um, a cycle of anger and resentment and all of that kind of stuff. 
we need to be praying for our enemies. That's, that's the, the unique thing about Christianity is love those who hate you. And we can do that knowing that they remain hating us only at the will of God. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Another response here is humility because sometimes it's easy to go, oh, well, I'm a prince. God must have seen something in me and, and yeah. given this grace and given this love to me, look right. at me. Yeah. But instead, realizing, no, I resisted the entire time. Right. This is not me. Even, even times now, I, I resist. <clears throat> yeah. God gave this. Right. It, so it, it, it really shows a sense of humility. Yeah. We, we have to. Yeah. We earned nothing. And, and it goes back, I mean, and that's what we'll get to next time with unconditional. There are no conditions put on God that He must act. It's sheer mercy. Which glorifies who He is, right? And in the same respect, uh, He changes us. He loved us while we were yet sinners. What, what debt do we now have toward Him but to do that to one another and to the outside world? Because He loved us while we were unlovely, we reflect Him. Maybe that's the difficulty Ignatius is talking about. <laughs> it's hard to do. It's not natural to us. And yet we were called to do that. And we can only do it by the Holy Spirit. All right. I know, I know I'm way long. Okay. Let me, let me pray. We'll go on. There's one response to a doctrine like this, Lord, and it's thank you. And we thank you that the entire Godhead is at work effectively in the salvation of your people. And it displays the great grace that you have toward those on whom you set your affection. And so we pray that we would respond first in overwhelming and unconditional love toward you, that we wouldn't put um, qualifiers on how we serve you, only if it's convenient, only if it doesn't hurt, but that we would realize that with great cost, you, you saved us, you purchased us through the death of your own son. And we have nothing to offer you, and you've given us everything. So help us to see... Um, that the response that we have to, to you is to love uh, our neighbors, to love um, our brothers and sisters in Christ, even when it costs. We pray for this in Christ's name and in His power, which is the only power that we have uh, that is effective to do that in our own hearts. And uh, we, we ask that, we, that you would do this to His glory among us. In Christ's name, amen.